Okay, today's class, it's unique that it's dedicated by Dr. Joseph Safdie in honor of his wife, Sharon. And the reason why it's unique is because after last week's class, Dr. Joe sent me an email saying, I've listened to every single one of your classes over the last four years. It's a pretty good record, every single class. Um, he says, and when you gave last week's class at first, I really loved it, and I loved your point. Do you remember last week's class? It was a little tough. He says, but then I was a little nervous, like, are you challenging the people too much? Are you making us look too bad, worse than we should? And so since Dr. Joe is dedicating this class, and I love him very much, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for him, and he's been there for my father and my family in many, many ways, I'd like to respond to that. And... Remember this about any class I ever give. Don't ever judge my opinion based on one phrase or one statement or even one half hour. You know where I stand on things. I love this community. I love this community with all our wackiness. My mother and my father have taught, I can't tell you how many times they've said that Ashkenazi would see a Syrian girl on a train and say, that's in the girl's like dressed, I don't know how, next thing you know, she's pulling out a tehillim and saying it the whole way to the city. So... We know that we're an unbalanced community, and we know that in some regard, the unbalancedness of our community makes our, gives us our greatness. And I am not disagreeing with that. And I love our community, and I'll, of course, welcome every question, if it's the dumbest question or the most insignificant question in the world. My point just was, which I don't take back my point, my point just was that we as individuals should look in the mirror and say, am I taking the serious thing seriously I was sometimes overdoing the not such serious things and making a big deal and, and not making a big deal out of the serious things. And when you talk about kashrut, if you would know how much time is spent in Shulchan Aruch just on the fork, going into the pot, in the water, with the the, the detail that's, that's used on it is so extreme. And if you look at how Shulchan Aruch talks about talking during praying and how much Gemara spends on praying three times a day, if you would see the things that are important, I would just hope our community would start to move in a direction where we realize that the things that are important we take very seriously and the things that are not as important we take less seriously and that we know the difference between the two. God forbid in no other way am I saying that we're bad and we're, and we're, we're ignorant, that God forbid it's not what I meant. And I think everyone who knows me well knows that that's not what I meant. Good. Thank you. But I stand by the point. We have to move away from funniness and we have to be open to growing in the areas of our religion that are serious and that are meaningful. And that's my point, especially now when we're a year later and we're still in this. Good. Totally new topic today. Have you ever, have you had anything, can you think of something in the last month that happened to you that was annoying? Something that happened in the last month that was annoying. Good, not so difficult, not a hard question. I'm not talking about anything epic. I'm not talking about anything long-standing, just something annoying. Like I asked it to a group of boys the other night, and one of them, young men in their 20s, one of them says, yeah, I could come up with something. I was supposed to come to your class last week at 8 o'clock. I said, I said, okay. He says, no, I didn't make it. He says, you know, it was so annoying. You know why I didn't make it? Because my house is near the shul, and I was supposed to park in my driveway, and someone was blocking my driveway, so I couldn't make the class. I said, okay, good example. I said, that guy's blocking your drawing. You're so annoying, right? He says, yeah. That's a great example. 
Good. Now that you have the case in your head, now let me tell you what we're going to speak about. We're going to speak about a disease that many people are afflicted with. I don't know if many is 10% of people or 90% of people, but many people are afflicted with this disease. And my goal today is to cure us of this disease. If you're not afflicted with it, your husband may be, your spouse may be, your children may be, your parents may be, your friends may be, it's almost guaranteed that you know somebody who's afflicted with this disease. The disease is chronic blamers. Do you know chronic blamers? Those are people that whenever something happens, they automatically have somebody to blame. It's his fault, it's her fault, she did it, that part, they made me, they stopped me, they did chronic blamers. Does anyone here know chronic blamers? Yes? Yes, yes? good. So there are many people that are afflicted with this disease. And we are going to try to cure them, to heal them, and make them realize how ridiculous it is to be one of these people. And we look at the greatest sin in Jewish history, this week's parasha, parasha kitisa, the sin of the Egel. And the story of the Egel takes only a few pesukim to tell. The story of the Egel happens where the Jewish people, Moshe Rabbeinu goes up to Shemayim, the Har Sinai, for 40 days and 40 nights. The Jewish people think he's late. They go to Aharon, they basically pressure him into helping them to build a golden calf. And by the time Moshe Rabbeinu arrives the next day, there's a golden calf and the Jewish people are worshipping this idol. What it was, what it meant, what they thought, we've given many classes about that. I don't want to talk about their sin specifically. I want to talk about how Moshe Rabbeinu handled the sin after it happened. He goes before God and he has a mission. His mission when he's standing before Hashem is to make God have mercy on the Jewish people. Hashem wants to destroy the Jewish people. And Moshe Rabbeinu comes to God and he says, comes to Hashem and he says, please don't destroy this nation because of the sin, the mistake they made. So you're looking for Moshe Rabbeinu's argument and you're expecting his argument to be one that says very clearly that it's not so bad what they did. But that's not what it says. When you look at the Pasuk, Moshe Rabbeinu stands before Hashem and he says, They did a tremendous sin. One second. You're trying to make the argument, trying to make the case to save the people. I would imagine the best way to save them is to minimize the sin. Why are you maximizing it? That's question number one. Question number two is in the conversation, Moshe Rabbeinu says to Hashem, that if you destroy this nation, erase my name from your sefer. And that's why Moshe Rabbeinu's name is missing from one parasha in the Torah. One parasha after he was born. There's one parasha, less which parasha doesn't have his name. But why is that what Moshe Rabbeinu wants? Why is that like almost like his threat or his leverage to Hashem? Erase me from your sefer. And finally, I have a third question. This one jumped off the page the most to me. Moshe Rabbeinu comes down from Har Sinai, shatters the Luchot, and then approaches Aharon. And he says, why did you do this? Why did you have the Jewish people build an idol? 
So Aharon says, you know, the nation, they're bitter. Ah, they, they're, they're bad, they're tough, they're challenging. They asked me for an idol. I told them to get me their gold. They got it faster than I expected. Before you know it, there was an idol there. In the Bisukim, you look, Moshe Rabbeinu never answers Aharon. He asks him, why you do it? Aharon gives this whole long answer. Instead, Moshe Rabbeinu, here's what happens. After Aaron's three Pesukim answer, Moshe Rabbeinu says this. Moshe doesn't even say anything. Vayar Moshe Ta'am, Moshe Rabbeinu sees the nation. Ki paruahu, because they like revealed. Ki paraor Aaron l'shimsa b'kamehem. Because Aaron revealed their sin. Which means that Moshe Rabbeinu looks at the nation and says, Aaron caused this sin. One second. Aharon just told you an answer. He said, the Jewish people, they're very tough. They push me. They cause me. What am I going to do? Moshe does not respond to Aharon. He just sees the people and sees how Aharon caused them to sin. Why did you answer when Aharon spoke? And, and why does your answer seem to be that like almost you ignored what he said? So we're going to answer all of this. I want to first try and explain, if I can, why I think people blame so much. Are you ready for this? It's going to take a couple of minutes, and you need to, like, bear with me on this. You ready? Why I think people like to complain. Why I like to blame. Throughout your day, you think a lot. You don't just think a lot. You think about yourself a lot. What I mean is, you think about yourself almost as if you're someone outside of you thinking about you. And these are your thoughts. Am I happy right now? Am I in a good mood? Am I in a bad mood? Am I a successful person? Do people view me as successful? Do I have a good family? Do I have a good reputation? Do I have enough people that know me? Do I have enough money? Am I happy right now? Am I in a good mood? Am I in a bad mood? Am I doing well? Do people think I'm doing well? Am I succeeding? Am I doing well? Am I do serving my purpose? Am I accomplishing? Am I productive? How am I doing? How do I look like I'm doing? Am I doing okay or not? Do you agree with these thoughts or not? Yes? We are thinking about this all day. We're literally tormented by these thoughts. That's why there are some nights where you go to bed at night and you are exhausted and you did nothing. All you did was your brain was going at you like a woodpecker and it was going again and 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 it was hitting you. Am I doing okay? Am I doing great? Am I succeeding? Am I happy? Am I not happy? How am I doing? How am I succeeding? How my family? How's my spouse? How does my marriage look? How do people see me? And you're thinking about this all day and all night. Here's the problem. You never know the real answer to the question. You don't even know if you're happy right now. Really, you don't know. Am I happy? I'm some happy somebody. You don't know the mood you're in. Most of the time, you don't even know the answer. Am I considered successful? Am I not? How successful? How am I raved against other successful people? You never know the answer to the question. So here's all you have. All you have are proofs. So you go with your proofs. What are your proofs? I have a proof that I'm doing well. You know, I look at my car. I have a proof that I'm succeeding. Why? You know, I look at my two houses. I have a proof that I'm doing well. Look at my bank account. I have a proof that I'm considered success. Look at my children. I have a proof that I'm doing well. Look how many Twitter followers I have. Or look how many people follow me on Instagram. I go rely on all the proofs to the fact that I must be happy. Look at my bank account. I must be happy. Look at these three vacations I went on. I must be in a good mood. I All I have 
are the proofs. Like one day I was talking to someone at the end of the day, he says to me, you don't know how busy. I had 50 missed calls today. That's his proof that he's relevant. I know he was trying to say, look how important I am. I have 50 missed calls. There are some people who love to tell you how many emails they have. I wake up to 100 emails because that proves to them that they're doing well. They love those proofs. So again, I'm asking myself this question all the time. How am I doing? How happy am I? How successful am I? I don't know the answer. The only answer I got are the proofs that I have in my life that prove to me that I must be happy. Because I have no idea if I'm really happy. I just have proofs to the fact that I'm happy. Still following me? Good. Here's the problem. Then I also have in my life proofs to the fact that I'm not doing so well. Because I made a dinner and no one really said thank you afterwards. It must be I'm not doing so great. I posted something on Instagram and I got no likes. I must not be doing so great. My bank account is not nearly as great or as strong as I expected it to be. Or as my brother's is. So I must not be doing so great. And you know what? I tried to do that project and it didn't work. So I must not be doing so great. If you are a competitive person, you hate those things. Because those things prove that you're not succeeding and you're not happy and you're not productive and you're not doing great and you're not in a good mood and you don't you didn't accomplish and you and all the negative thoughts that you have all of those things prove the fact that you're not okay. So you know what you do you can't stomach that because you like all your proofs that show that you're happy and successful. You can't stand all those proofs that show that you're a failure. So you know what you do? You take all of those proofs and you blame them on other people, and then you're good to go. Because all my successes are mine, and all my failures are this. Perfect. That's why we love to blame. Because when we blame, we have nothing to worry about. We have all of the good side of us is fantastic, and all of the negative side of us is not my fault. It's my wife, it's my husband, it's my kids, it's my parents, it's my upbringing, it's my boss is a terrible boss, that's why I don't make money. I have all the reasons, all the people to blame. This began on the first week of creation. God created man and man sinned. And Hashem went to man and said, why did you sin? Now hearing that question from Hashem is basically God saying, I put you on this world to be the father of humanity. Why did you mess up? Adam Arishon can't stomach the fact that he messed up. So what does he say? This answer has been the answer of all men since the beginning of time. It's my wife's fault. Every man has used it. But Adam Harishon was the first. He blames it on his wife. Shaul HaMelech, the first Jewish king, was removed from power because of one word. One word. Remove Shaul HaMelech from power. It's one word that got him no longer to be the Jewish king. It wasn't a sin. It was one word. Shemuel HaNaviyah told him, Go fight Amalek and then wait for me to bring certain sacrifices. And Shaul, after waiting a long time, couldn't wait anymore. And Shemuel HaNavi tells Shaul, Why did you do it without me? Says Shaul, the first Jewish king, his answer was because of Ha'am, the people. The people pressured me. 
It's because of the people. Shaul says, you're telling me the people, you're supposed to be a king and you're blaming it on the people. You're no longer going to be the king of the Jewish people. One word, Ha'am. He blamed it on the people because he couldn't stomach the fact that I messed up. He couldn't handle the fact that it's my fault. I don't want to be associated with my failures. I don't. I don't want to handle failures. I can't handle negativity. So you know what I do? I automatically, I blame which is what Aharon did right here in the story of the Egil. Moshe Rabbeinu approaches Aharon. He uses the same word that Shaul HaMelech did. He says, you know what happened? You know the nation. It's the nation's fault. If you're a blamer, you know this feeling. You know that feeling of being pushed up against the wall and sort of coming face to face with something that went wrong and there's no way you want to have anything to do with it. I'm going to be honest now. I often give classes on topics that I'm good at. And every now and then I give classes on topics that I'm terrible at. I am not good at this one. When I was away on vacation with my wife on a Friday night, I said, honey, let's talk about it. I said, I want to be more productive. I want to have do more things. I said, I need more people working with me on different projects. She said, Joey, sometimes it's hard to work with you. I said, why? She says, because you blame too much. That's pretty direct, right, from my wife to my man. I said, you know what? You're 100% right. And I remember it from when I was a little kid. I told you the story before. I was in eighth grade, and all of my friends, close friends, turned against me. And I remember it like it was literally five minutes ago. But the one thing that sticks out is that they had a whole laundry list of the bad things that I did. And I, they were ridiculous, most of them. But there's one that stuck in my mind. We had once played a baseball, softball game on a Sunday or a Friday. And we had self-team pitching. That means you don't have enough players on the other team. So your own team pitches. And I was up with a few men on base. And self-team pitching, I struck out. And I was mad at the pitcher. They said, "You, who do you think you are? You struck out and you're mad at the pitcher. I said, yeah, I was mad at the pitcher. He's on my team. Why do you strike me out? <laughs> but what they were saying in essence is, you struck out. Why are you blaming it on somebody else? And if I had the ears as a 13-year-old, I would have heard it then. You blame. And blaming is just a way to wipe the failure off your back. I'll give you a more recent example. About two months ago, we had our first major snowstorm. So I was debating if I should drive to the shul that's, a, that's my shul. It's like a mile away from my house. Should I go? Should I have fun? I said, I'm going to do it. I got out, got up early, shoveled behind the car a little bit, so swept all the snow off of the car. I drove very slowly. I got to shul four minutes late. And I walked in and I had a face that was visibly annoyed at the crowd. Why didn't you wait for me? And a couple of people could tell, why didn't you wait for me? Why, it's a snow day. I'm the rabbi of the shul. You couldn't wait four minutes to start. It's a snow day. I was going anywhere anyhow. But when I walked out, I realized, you know what I just did? Is I blamed my problem on other people. We love to do this. But there's nothing worse than being a blamer. And the rest of this class is going to try to explain why. Let me tell you how powerful and important it is that you never blame other people. Every day we say Anna, we say Vidui. We say it in Yom Kippur extensively, but we say it every day. 
And in the vidui, we start off with a phrase that sounds almost strange, like it sounds very long-winded. But in the context of this class, the vidui is very appropriate. Here's what we say. She'en anachnu panim. We are not ukshe'orev. We are not stubborn and obnoxious people. To say before you, our God, the God of our forefathers, that we are righteous and we never sinned. We are not a people that will say we never sinned. We're not the kind of people that blame all of our mistakes on somebody else. We're not those people. But rather we did sin. We are not blamers. We're not the people who are going to say and ignore the mistakes and make it like it wasn't ours. There's nothing worse than being that person who takes credit for all the success and blames everybody else for all the failure. You know, I've read a book recently and I quoted it a few times. It's called How to Lead. It's interviews that were done with almost all the powerful people in the country over the last 20, 30 years. From Bill Clinton to George Bush to Steve Jobs to... Uh, what's his name? Bill Gates to Jeff Bezos to the other guy who was the investment guy, I'm forgetting his name, to Oprah Winfrey to the, the Supreme Court justices to uh, what's his, what's the name of that, that famous general that we had in America but, uh, during Bush's time? What's his name? Who was Bush's brother? No, it was African American. Collins, right, exactly. So Colin Powell, exactly. All of those people interviewed in this book. If you were to ask me the one theme that runs through all of them is that they take responsibility for their stuff. A successful leader takes responsibility for failure. And I'm going to tell you why. First, I'm going to tell you the small reasons. Then I'm going to get to the real reasons. First of all, I want you to know this. When someone challenges you with something and you blame somebody else, I just want you to know, nobody believes you. No one ever believes you're blaming. No one ever does. It's a fact. And you know because you've heard people blame others to you. And you're like, ah, ah, whatever. But you're not believing them. And I said this to this, that group of boys that I told you about that I mentioned this topic to in the beginning. And I asked them, what's the most annoying thing? And I said, I just want you to know when you blame other people, no one believes you. So this kid with the car says to me, what do you mean? I said, I'll tell you what I mean. You remember how you told me how your annoying story was that someone blocked the driveway and that's why you couldn't come to class? He says, yeah. I said, I'll tell you what I heard when you said that. The class starts at 8 o'clock. What happened is you probably drove up to the class at 8.20, saw someone blocking the driveway, and you said, I could block, I could park two blocks away, but Hajj, I have a good excuse. I could just tell Rabbi Haber someone blocked my driveway. I'm not going to park two blocks away, get to 8.33. It's not worth it anymore, so forget it. He says, wow, Rabbi, that was spot on. That's exactly what happened. I said, you think I believed you. I don't believe you. Just like your teacher when you were in school never believed your excuses. You don't ever believe people's blamings. You never do. I'll give you another example. On Purim, I had boys in my house. I probably shouldn't have had some, but I had a few boys come to my house, and I should have been a little more careful. And then... And then I went to my in-law's house, and then I was supposed to go to my sister's house. Long story short, I got to my sister's house late. House late. On Sunday, she called me up and said, Joe, you know, we were annoyed that you came to the house late. So what do I do automatically? What do you do when you get pressure? Automatically blame other people. My wife, my mother-in-law, I couldn't leave my in-law's house, my wife's fault. And my sister's listening to me. 
I know she doesn't believe me. I know she doesn't believe me. You could ask her, call her up, ask her, did you believe Joey when he said that he came late because of his wife? She heard me. And she just got tired and moved on. But they, no one believes you. You want to know my proof that no one believes you? Moshe Rabbeinu challenges Aharon. Why did you do this? Aharon comes up with a whole excuse. And Moshe doesn't even respond to it. Vayar Moshe, Moshe just sees that the Jewish people sinned because of Aharon. What do you mean because of Aharon? Aharon just told you it was everyone else's fault. Moshe Rabbeinu, like everyone else around you, doesn't believe you when you blame it on other people. Besides that, when you blame others, you look so weak. There's nothing that looks more like failure than someone who's supposed to be accomplished who blames it on other people. Someone who's supposed to be strong that blames it on other people. When you're a blamer, you look so insecure, so not strong, so unconfident. You look so weak when you blame. And you know what else happens? You also lose trust because when the person you blamed, you now blamed it on your spouse, or you blamed it on your kids, they don't trust you anymore. You're in a job and you blame it on another employee, they will never trust you again. So when you blame, A, no one's believing you, B, you look like a weak link, and C, C, what's happening is no one's trusting you anymore. But that's not the real reason why it's terrible to blame. Those are all the superficial reasons. Everybody knows that. Maybe not everyone doesn't know about that no one trusts you, that no one believes you, but everyone knows you look weak when you blame. Everyone knows you lose trust when you blame. But I think there's a much, much bigger reason why blaming is such a disease, why it's so catastrophic, so much deeper, so much more powerful, and so much more meaningful reason for why it's horrible to be that person. It's the reason why Moshe Rabbeinu stood before God and said, erase me from your book. Here's why. You're following me so far, correct? Here's why. You see, you have inside of you so much power. You have inside of you so much strength. You have so much capability. It's unbelievable. You have inside of you so much beauty, so much productivity, so much accomplishment, and the ability for so much creativity. I chose every one of those words specifically. You have inside of you so, so much. But you know what it takes in order to bring that out of you? It takes a challenge. It won't happen unless you're challenged. When you're challenged, that's what brings out your courage, your strength, your productivity, your ability, and your creativity. It's when you're challenged that all of that comes out. And if you want a proof, let's look through Tanakh. Abraham Avinu was our forefather. You know why? Because he was challenged 10 times. That's all the stories we read about, 175 years of life. All we read about are the challenges in his life. Because the challenges are what brings out the wellspring of greatness. Yitzhak Avinu, what do we read? When he was challenged with wells. When he was challenged to possibly be slaughtered by his father. Noah is considered a historic man because he lived through the challenge of a flood. It's when you deal with adversity that creates 
all of your beauty. Yaakov Avinu, the story of the chosen of our forefathers, is a story of a man who ran away from trickery and from hate his entire life. Those are the stories we read. That's what produced his greatness. Yosef HaTzadik would never be the man we speak about if not for the fact that he was thrown into a foreign jail and had to become a person who pursued and fought for his dream and trusted Borei Olam to deliver him on his dream. Yosef HaTzadik became the man he became because he was thrown into those challenges. Every great man that we know, every great man in the history of our people happened because they were pressured and because they were challenged. When you blame somebody else, you completely miss the opportunity. Because here you had a failure. Here you had a failure. That failure now is a challenge to you. It's something that can motivate you. It's something that can inspire you. It's something that could build so much greatness out of you. And instead, you peg it on somebody else. You lost the chance. You lost the chance to take that failure, use it as a challenge to create something special. You just lost that opportunity because you just blamed it on somebody else. You lost the opportunity to find straightness, greatness inside of you that you didn't know you have. Because you know what happened on that day that I came late to shoot and it snowed? After I blamed everybody, I said, Joey, stop blaming anybody. You could have woken up earlier. You could have gotten out faster. And you could have been here on time. You have more resources than you think you do. You have more ability than you think you do. So instead of blaming everybody else, take it on me. I have to find a way to make it happen. And the next time there was a snowstorm, I did. And I found a way to find the strength inside of me to be even better. To even though I live a mile away, and even though there's snow, and even though there was ice, and even though I had to drive snow slow to still get there on time. When you blame other people, you lose the chance. You had a challenge. You had a failure. Something went wrong. Don't put it on anybody else. Put it on you. Because when you put it on you, you bring so much more out of you. Moshe Rabbeinu, if he ever had a chance to blame, this was it. He could have easily gone up to heaven and said, God, listen, the Jewish people made a mistake. It's their fault. They didn't have me there. If I was there, I could have helped, but I wasn't there. And when I'm not there, look what happens to them when I'm not there. Moshe Rabbeinu does the opposite. He says, it's on me. If the Jewish people sinned, erase me from your book. I'm taking full responsibility. What do you mean taking full responsibility? You weren't even there. You were gone for 40 days and 40 nights. The answer is Moshe Rabbeinu knows here's an opportunity to produce greatness. Here's an opportunity to show something so much more than he ever did. That the entire nation is at risk of being destroyed. And Moshe Rabbeinu says, it's on me. I'm going to be the greatest leader to ever live because I'm going to take full responsibility for their mistake and it's going to produce something so much more. God would then make him, his literally his face would shine after that because he had that level of greatness to take a challenge and make it his. The next time you're in a challenge, don't make it somebody else's. You lost the opportunity. You lost the opportunity to create something fantastic out of yourself. There's so much beauty you can produce. Why would you peg it on your husband or your wife or your kids? Next time something goes wrong, say, you know what? On me. I can do better and I will do better. I could have delivered and I will deliver next time. I saw my mistake. 
I see my failure. I see that this no one liked this dinner. Next dinner will be fantastic. Not they have no taste buds. They don't know what to eat. They only eat unhealthy. No, I am going to do a great job next time. Take the responsibility on yourself because then you take the opportunity on yourself. When you blame other people, you lose the opportunity. Even if you're just blaming your words and you know it's your fault, not good enough. Because when you blame with your words, you're still deflecting. Take it on you. I will do better next time. I will make sure I'm on time. I'll make sure I'm there. I'll make sure I produce fantastic. I will make sure it's something that you enjoy. Last time wasn't. It's my fault. I'll give you a little example. So I told you about this book. And I read this about this man, Sir Richard Branson. He has Virgin Atlantic, Virgin Airlines. How did he produce Virgin Airlines? He once was trying to go on a flight from Puerto Rico to the Virgin Islands. And I think it was on British Airways. And somehow the flight was canceled. So now all these people have a canceled flight. What do you do when you have a canceled flight? You start complaining. You used to get angry at the person at the counter who has nothing to do with it. You start blaming the, the airline. This is the worst airline. This is the worst service. The pilots are impossible. They don't know what they're doing. You know what he did? He says, wow, let me see what I could do. He goes to the back in the, in the airport. He goes to the back. And he finds a small plane. And he says, can I rent the plane? He rents the plane, puts up a sign in this terminal. And he says, anyone whose flight was canceled, I just rented a plane for $39. You can fly on my plane to the Virgin Islands. He says, when I landed, someone next to me says, you know what? If you just fix up the service a little bit, you have an airline. The next day, he called up Boeing and bought a used 747. And that's how he created an airline. Why would you let a good failure go to waste by blaming it on somebody else? When a failure happens, when something goes wrong, take it on you. Moshe Rabbeinu said, talking to Borei Olam, it's on me. He says, and you know what I'm going to do? God, I am, my job is to make the Jewish people realize that they made a colossal mistake and they're going to change. That's why Moshe Rabbeinu's argument is not that the sin is small. He says, they did a great sin. And I'm going to let them know how great their sin is so that they change. I am not a person who blames or ignores. I'm the opposite. I'm going to go right into the fire and I'm going to take it. Because that's what creates a wellspring of greatness. So if you're a blamer, not only do you lose trust, not only do you become look weak, not only... Do other people not even believe what you're saying? The worst part about the whole thing is that you lose the best opportunity you got. Because only through challenge is where something special happens. If you just take credit for your successes, blame other people for your failures, you will never have a challenge that could squeeze something beautiful out of you. I have one last point and we'll conclude. And this one is very important. Don't blame other people. But you know what else you shouldn't do? Don't even blame yourself. And you say, one second, that's, the whole class was about blaming yourself, so let me explain. Let me explain it very clearly. There's a big difference between blaming yourself and challenging yourself. They're not the same thing. And last week's parasha, I'm going to tell you a rashi that's going to sound as random and irrelevant to you today as possible. 
Yet from that Rashi, we're going to take out of it a beautiful point. Am I ever supposed to be frustrated? Am I ever supposed to get down on myself? The answer lies in a few words in Rashi. Here's what Rashi says. It, the Pasu Parashat talks about the fact that we squeeze an olive and the first squeeze was used Lama'or. That pure first squeeze was used for the candles of the menorah in the Mishkan. The other, after that, that after that you could use it to Korban Mincha for the Menachot. But the first squeeze is only for the menorah, not for the Korban Mincha. Let's explain. And here's what Rashi says. Katit Lama'or. That pure squeeze is for the light. And the squeeze, that first squeeze, is not for Korban Mincha. The Baalei Musar, maybe Hasidish Rabbis, say here's what it means. Katit, you squeeze yourself. You challenge yourself. You even can be frustrated with yourself. If it lights you up. But don't let yourself become sweet if it makes you like menucha, if it puts you to sleep. You want to know when frustration is good? Frustration is good if it lights you up, if it motivates you. Frustration is terrible if it puts you to sleep. If it makes you say in the morning, forget it, I'm so not in the mood for the day, I'm going to put my pillow back on my head. Katit, the squeeze is good, la ma'or, if it motivates you. The squeeze is not good. It's not good if it puts you to sleep. The point is, blaming yourself just makes you down, frustrated, and depressed. Ownership and challenging yourself is a very different thing. That's powerful. Blame is debilitating, even if you're blaming yourself. Because that was my answer that night tomorrow. I said, honey, I don't just blame other people. I blame myself a ton. She says, that's part of the problem. Because when you're blaming yourself, you just get negative on yourself. And you get down on yourself. And you just want to put your pillow on your head and go back to sleep. That's not productive. That's not opportunity. Opportunity is when you don't blame yourself. You challenge yourself. And because challenging yourself inspires you. It motivates you. It energizes you. It focuses you. It makes you determined for the next time. It lights you up. Not the squeeze that puts you to sleep. So don't blame others. Don't even blame yourself. Challenge yourself. The next time a failure happens, next time something goes wrong, say, you know what? Next time it's going to be different. Let me prove it. Wait to see. Have that response. Because that response will keep you so focused. That response, that creates respect. People respect that kind of response. People can count on someone with that kind of response. People trust people with that kind of response. People believe people with that kind of response. And people with that kind of response force themselves to produce greatness. Yosef never said, I'm in jail because of my brothers. Abraham never said, I'm having challenges because I made a mistake, God forbid, in finding God. There was never blame. Because blame doesn't build fantastic beauty. Challenging does. I'll give you one last, it's just a little story. I just like it. And I think we answered all the questions. Why Moshe Rabbeinu said, erase me from that sefer? Because he wants to put it on himself. Why he said it's a chata'a gedola? He says, because I am going to teach the Jewish people how to challenge themselves too. And why when Aharon talks, he just doesn't even respond? Because when a person is starting to blame and make excuses... The reaction is, I'm really not even listening anymore. 
Rabbi Aaron Cutler was one of the greatest rabbis to ever live in this country. He founded Bet Midrash Gavoa, which is the yeshiva in Lakewood that today has thousands of students and transformed the town and reality transformed the country. Rabbi Aaron Cutler took, I don't know if there's any rabbi in the history of this country that ever took more responsibility for the Jewish people than this man. One night, he came into the dormitory. The yeshiva at that time had about 35 students. Today, like I said, it might have six or 7,000. 35 students. He walked into the dorm at 12.30 at night, on a Thursday night. And one of the young men were there. He had, was learning late, and he just came into the dorm at 12.30. Rabbi Aaron Cutler tells this man, gather a group of boys, 10 boys. We're going to say Tehillim right now. He says, who are we saying Tehillim for? For a rav, a rabbi from Denver, Colorado. He says, what? Rabbi Redderman from Denver, Colorado? Why, why are we saying? He says, we're saying Tehillim. And now he says, but rabbi, the, the 10 boys might be sleeping. Wake them up. Rabbi, why do we have to wake them up? Why can't we just do it tomorrow morning? He says, let me tell you. Because you see, a few years ago, I had an opportunity to potentially save 300,000 Jews from Nazi Germany. Now, he had made a deal with Heimlich Himmler to give $5 million to a Swiss bank, and Himmler was going to save 300,000 Jews. He had, Rabbi Aaron Kutler took it on himself to raise $5 million, whatever it is, in 1940. That's not, not an easy thing to do in a country that had barely any religious Jews in America at that time. But the bottom line is, he said, I put in all my heart and soul. In the end of the day, we were only able to save like 1,000, 1,500 because Hitler found out, and he squashed the whole deal. He says, but in the middle of the deal, when I was trying to raise that money, he says, I sent a telegram to all of the rabbis across the country that who can raise some money from their kahal, it'll help us save Jews overseas. He says, and this Rabbi Redderman was the first rabbi to respond. He says, this man takes responsibility for Am Yisrael. Now he's sick. We're going to pray for him right now. He says, I never met this Rabbi Redderman in my life. I don't know what he looks like, but I know that when I sent the telegram and said, who's ready? He was the one person that got up and the first person to get up and say, I'm ready to save Am Yisrael. You want to be that kind of person? You want to produce something fantastic? Stop blaming other people. You're allowed to have made a mistake and maybe a lot of mistakes and a lot of failures. It's okay. We all have failures. That makes you human. But when you blame it on other people, you lose the opportunity. But when you take it on yourself, not as a blame, but as a challenge, you make it something that can produce something fantastic and something great. Katit la maor. Squeeze yourself to bring out light. Those people that are chronic blamers, the next time you see someone do it, you just feel sad for them. They look so weak. But when you're a person who takes the challenge on yourself, you look so great. Because the greatest people in Jewish history are people that were challenged and said, it's on me to change it. So the next time something goes a little wrong, maybe something a little annoying, like you got late to somewhere or you didn't produce something so well, or people didn't come, you invited them, they didn't want to come, or people didn't seem to laugh at your joke. You know what you do? Just stop and say, I'm going to make it much better next time. Because the squeeze is going to light me up. Thank you. Thank you very much.